Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factor, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics. I do have a few. I love to, I love to geek out about many things. One of them is behavioral science and specifically the ways that we could apply the insights of behavioral science that have come out over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years now that have really changed the way we understand human behavior, how to apply those towards for good causes like nonprofit communications, like fundraising, like making the world a better place for all of us. Today, I've got Sarah Welch with me on the show. She is the vice president of Ideas 42, where she helps lead behavioral innovations in in two focus areas, improving the way donors at all levels give to charity and tackling climate change. Prior to joining Ideas 42, Sarah completed a three-year dual degree program at Yale's School of Management and School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, where she focused on urban resource management and planning. In her past life, Sarah was an ecological designer, restoring natural habitats in and around New York City, which is pretty cool. Sarah holds an MBA and an MEM from Yale and received her BA in environmental science and public policy from Harvard. (laughs) She'd take cheese over cake any day. Uh, Sarah describes her superpower as using behavioral science, which gives us a deep understanding of why humans do what they do, to unlock better giving by donors to the organizations they care about. And if that's not an ideal topic for one of our shows, I don't know what is. So with that, let's bring Sarah onto the show. Hi. Hi, Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. I uh, read your impressive bio um, with all the impressive schools that that you attended. I'm sure you have a lot of great stuff to share with us. Now you have to live up to that bio, of course. Yeah, geez. (laughs) Thanks for setting expectations. But let's just start with uh, something simple, which is what's your story? Why are you doing what you do today? I love that question. Uh, So I... So now I work in behavioral science, right? And I try to understand why humans do what they do. But as you recounted so accurately, um, I started my career working in um, landscape design and ecology. Um, I thought I wanted to be a landscape architect. And so what I had this kind of, did all this work and I eventually went to grad school, felt a little lost. And while I was at grad school, I discovered behavioral economics, which was a course at Yale and um, kind of had this light bulb moment where I realized the thing that it was so interesting to me about nature and the environment and landscape wasn't actually the, you know, the trees are wonderful, right? Like that's really cool. But the thing that was super interesting, yeah, was how humans interacted with that landscape, right? How are humans taking cues from their environment and then making decisions? Um, And so when I discovered, you know, behavioral economics and behavioral science, one of the key tenets of that is that our context and what's around us, our environment, um, is influencing our behavior and our biases. That for me was just like, oh, this is it. (laughs) This is what I've been looking for. And so um, after grad school, I found Ideas 42 and have been doing this work ever since. Um, And I still like trees, but it's a different different feeling about them now. (laughs) 
now you help more people understand why they like trees and why they're important and, exactly. and why they should uh, value them because yeah. you know little thing called climate change right um, right right and I, that idea is pretty right so i mean the social impact piece is really important to me right so i could have i guess just left and gone and worked in you know marketing has a lot of the same aspects to it but but for me i still had that that social impact drive and ideas 42 we're a nonprofit organization also and we work across the spectrum so i've in my time there, I've been lucky enough to work on education projects and health projects and um, uh, uh, criminal justice, climate change eventually, and then and now philanthropy and giving, which has been super fascinating. I love, love, love behavioral science. It, it can be applied to so many different things. It's really... Um, a, a way of understanding how our brains work and how we respond to things and really take action, why we take action, why we do the things we do, what are the stories we tell ourselves about the things that we do, which I'm always fascinated about, you know, in every single uh, webinar I, I, I do or course that I present, I, I quote Danny Kahneman, who is a and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the fathers of behavioral economics and behavioral mm -hmm. science as a, as a whole, you know, who said that no one ever made a decision because of a number, they need a story. And so right. to me, that's just total validation uh, that A, storytelling is, is critical, but B, that behavioral science and understanding how people think and why they do the things they do will really help us help them make the decisions that are going to benefit all of us in the end. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I find it. I, I drink the Kool-Aid. I believe in all of that. I find it so compelling personally, too. Right. I mean, just right now, I told you a story about how I became interested in behavioral economics. And to be quite honest, that's something that developed after the fact. This is something that we all do as humans as we tell our we tell our stories yeah. afterwards. Right. We have the storytelling urge. So. Yeah, it's, it's the way we organize information in, in our brains. We need some sort of causality. We need a beginning, middle, end to it. We need that moment of discovery or overcoming an obstacle. Otherwise, it doesn't really feel as fulfilling in, in a lot of ways. Um, I wish it was simpler because I'd sure be happy to not have to go through several obstacles to, to get to epiphanies and things like that. But it works and it's getting us well, society forward for the most part. Occasionally we take a step back. But let's, um, I'm happy to geek out about all of this stuff all day, but let's focus in on what hopefully our audiences are interested in, which is specifically how to apply this stuff to nonprofits and the work that we're doing. What are you seeing out there in the nonprofit space these days? I know that lots has been going on, uh, obviously over the last couple of years specifically, and then with the development and new, uh, new concepts in behavioral science, Talk to us, Sarah. What's happening out there? Well, there's so much that I would love to cover. And, you know, Boris, I encourage you. I have so many colleagues who are working all sorts of interesting things and so many other people in the space. Um, I spend a lot of my time now focused on, on philanthropy, which is really saying, you know, why do people give, whether that's time or money or, or um, voice or energy, whatever it is, right? Why do people... Um, why are we altruistic, right? Why do we why are, why do we help others? It doesn't actually like rationally really make that much sense. And so it's actually quite behavioral and really fascinating to dig into that. Um, and sort of the, the the sort of overall challenge there, right, is that over the past decade or so, um, I think household giving has been going down, so trending downward. People and to be clear, what we're talking about when we say that is like tax deductible gifts that can be recorded that we see, right? Um, so the pandemic might have kind of contributed to a little bit of an upward momentary blip there, but generally it's been going downward. 
Uh, and um, that's fascinating and challenging, right, for the nonprofit sector that a lot of nonprofits rely on that type of fundraising to carry them forward. Um, it also means that people who, you know, billionaires with lots of money to give suddenly will, conti will continue to have outside, outside um, voice and disproportionate voice in the sector. And that comes with its own sort of challenges. But, you know, even if they mean well, they are either kind of unelected um, people with a huge amount of power. So there is a, an argument, right, to continue to have these individual voices uh, being part of, of how the nonprofit fundraising um, sector works, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so um, in that space, so we've seen this downward trend, but then there's been other things, I think, lately that we think a lot about. Um, one is that the pandemic really did shift a lot of things, right? It caused the the whole nation, the whole world, really, I think, to recognize uh, to, to sort of have a reckoning with with equity um, and ask questions about like who has power and why do they have that power and how do we shift it if we need to? What does it mean to be part of a community? How do we interact with people virtually if we have to, right, rather than in person? All of those things have um, come to bear on the, the philanthropic sector as well. And so I've seen a lot of discussion, right, around like how do we take those questions of power and bring those into into um, giving and who's donating and to where are they donating, but also what what counts as giving, right? So in the pandemic, we saw this rise in mutual aid, um, which is not counted when we do the tax deductible giving, right? But there's yeah. also there's also just like you and I, I don't know, being kind to our neighbors or helping someone out. Or during the pandemic, it became a thing about like shopping local, right? Are you supporting restaurants and giving big tips? Um, all of those things all kind of come together into one big picture about what it means to be like a generous and kind person in a community. And so there's been a lot of talk, I think, too, now about like how do we recognize that type of giving? So I want to break down a, a lot of that stuff because it's absolutely fascinating and, and critical to understand in greater detail. Um, so uh, I did an episode a little while back with Doug White, who is a philanthropy expert as well. And we talked about this, that yes, overall giving actually has gone up while individual per capita giving has gone down. So philanthropists are in, uh, the the bigger philanthropists, let's just say, let's call them billionaires for lack of a better word, but honestly, anybody over $10 million uh, that that's giving uh, net worth, that's giving so much more than an average person, if the majority of people are giving less and the minority are giving more, then the minority can dictate what programs get funded, which nonprofits they're interested in, that, that's the ones that, and, and the types of work that they're doing, that's what's gonna happen. Even schools and uh, universities get funding from big name philanthropists who may or may not want their name on a building. And that dictates the direction they could go because that's the money that they could spend on, on certain things. So it's definitely an, an issue and a cause for concern in our society today where we want that element of our network of our, what, what is it called? The, the, the social safety net, if you will, to be more democratic for the entire population in one way or another to get a say in what we think is most important today for those of us who are perhaps less privileged or for society as, as a whole. So that's definitely an, an issue that I, I recognize and appreciate that you're working on to, to help solve. Um, the right. other things that you were talking about in terms of um, 
the trade-offs in, in the different types of giving that, that are going on and how things aren't measured. Yeah, during coronavirus, uh, during the heights of the pandemic, it was a lot more about coming together as a community, protecting each other, hopefully, in, in various ways. Even the act of wearing a mask when you're not afraid yourself you're going to get uh, you know, right. coronavirus, uh, but you're wearing it to protect others. That's There's something that gets reinvigorated in our social stream of consciousness, in our social contract to each other, where we feel more responsible to our neighbors and sometimes even to virtual neighbors around the world, right? Right, right. The virtual piece, I think, is super interesting, right? And that's another another trend um, that I don't think is going to go away is that, right, in general, we now have all these digital tools available to us. And um, in, in many ways, it makes things like giving much easier, right? I can text a small number, you know, a number to give 10 bucks to somebody, right? Or I can find something, I can find any charity I want online and send them a donation. Um, but in other ways, there are trade-offs there too, because sort of the, the old-fashioned way of somebody coming up to you and asking you to give actually has a, a lot more weight when it's so social and visible. And we, we are social creatures, as you know. Um, and so uh, I think there's some trade-offs there that we've been looking at too. Um, the rise in digital tools, you know, may have some um, uh, trade-offs in the social norms space. I think there's something we can do with that, but but that's been another tension I think that we see in the space. So dig into that for me. What is what is it that makes us give if someone is coming to us in person to ask? And I I, I mean I could visualize it in my head right now. Someone <laughs> right, asking we me not feel that as you describe that what that feels like. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to say no to someone to someone's face um, unless you're a New Yorker and are constantly being asked for for money on the street. And you know right. at some point you feel like it's overwhelmed. You, it's too much. You can't you can't help everybody, so you stop. A lot of New Yorkers. And, and I'm sure homelessness is, is on the rise around the country, I'm sure, not just in New York. Um, but the, uh, why is that more powerful than a digital ask? And then what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, we're ultimately such social creatures, right? The sort of behavioral economics um, phenomenon that we talk a lot about is like social norms, it's often described, um, basically refers to the fact that we are always subconsciously, even if not consciously, comparing ourselves to our peers, especially in situations where we're not quite sure what the right behavior is. And giving is full of that, right? We're never quite sure, like, I don't know, should I give to this chair? Is this, is this the right one? How much should I give? Things like that. And so that means that we are, I think, even more susceptible um, in cases where somebody's asking you for money or asking for a specific amount to those types of um, influences. And, um, there's actually, I mean, there's research specific to charity about this. It sounds a little bit silly, but people will literally go out of their way to avoid being asked because of the guilt, right? There's like a level of guilt that comes with saying no. Um, they, they ran a study in like a shopping mall that had two exits, right? And, you know, people went out of the way to avoid, it was literally Santa Claus, I think, ringing a bell um, to, to avoid that, that ask. Um, and so, yeah, we're just ultimately so social that that it's it's really hard to say no. But I do think there's something interesting here, too, where, again, if you imagine you are that person getting that ask, right, you feel ooh, icky. But after you make that donation, most of the time you still feel pretty good. You still have what we call warm glow from that donation. And that's true of a lot of other sorts of like pro-social activities. Um, you know, maybe wearing the mask, right? You kind of feel pressured by other people to wear a mask, but you do feel good ultimately that you're wearing that mask. Um, and so I think there is, 
there is some, it's a tension. And I don't know the answer is totally to get rid of it or rely too heavily on it. But um, we do see that when you uh, make things, sometimes to make things so easy, we put them online, right? And you remove that social aspect. There's one example that comes to mind. Um, I think the combined federal campaign, the CFC, right? Sort of an famous or infamous, maybe, depending how you felt about it, fundraising uh, effort within the federal government. Um, and the sort of old fashioned approach was people walking around, the pledge captains walking around the office with clipboards and saying, hey, Boris, um, will you donate you know, this year? How much are you gonna give out of your paycheck? And that social pressure, right? You would feel very obligated to contribute. I'm putting my reputation on the line by asking you. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the CFC in general had been going down, like, just like individual giving overall, right, had been trending downward for a number of years. And I think somewhere around 2017 or so, in an attempt to make it at least easier to give, they put it all online. So they got rid of the whole paper system. And that was also the year that they saw the biggest decrease. So suddenly you had taken away that social pressure, um, but you had put it online where the behavior was mostly invisible. And, you know, I don't know, maybe Boris, you're donating, but maybe you're also just, I don't know, rousing the internet on TikTok or whatever um, people did in 2017. So um, those trade-offs are everywhere, right? And again, I think there are ways that we can make digital tools still have that compelling social angle. But um, I think it's an interesting thing to come to, you know, to reckon with. Are we okay with that trade-off if you're not pressuring people? And what do you give up? Yeah. So I'm personally all about digital adoption, but yeah. I'm also about storytelling and uh, behavioral science and totally understand, you know, I used to live in, in Los Angeles and I'd be walking in Santa Monica or on the streets of New York. And there would be a team of youngish adults with uh, signs and clipboards and saying, hey, can I ask you a question? Do you like animals or, or something like that? And they're right. just trying to rope you into a conversation. And yeah, talk about avoidance. I would cross the street to go around them because I didn't have time and, and I knew I might get sucked in or because I would feel guilty saying no in, in that specific situation. I, I don't know if there's a direct translation to the digital version. You know, Online, you're right. We keep trying to remove friction. We keep trying to make it um, as easy as possible, you know, going to the work of, of Danny Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky, you know, it, the, the default option, right, the, the easiest option is the one that people are going to take uh, the most. And uh, if, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the biggest discoveries that, that they made in terms of behavior, whereas economics used to think of it as, you know, it's all about reward and punishment getting people to to do certain to behave in certain ways and take certain actions behavioral economics said actually it's a lot more nuanced than that because we're not all econs and the easiest way to get somebody to do something is to just make that the easiest path for them to go down right yeah yeah, yeah. hassles are hassles are a real problem they're a real barrier tiny little things that we think don't matter matter so much <laughs> So in digital, in digital fundraising specifically, but in, in general, in digital marketing and methodology, we're always trying to make things as frictionless as possible. Right. At the same time, we're trying to get people to take the actions by, you know, telling them stories that, that help them connect to that particular uh, cause, to a particular person, perhaps. How do we find the balance, I don't think there's a virtual version of that gauntlet that I might walk down yeah. in Santa Monica or in New York where there's people on both sides of me trying to get my attention asking right. 
and maybe we don't want that gauntlet, but how do we compensate no, for what we're losing? I know I have different I, I go back and forth on this right like do we want that gauntlet um so I mean you do see some of this in social media right like Facebook you know in, introduced um fundraising a while ago right and that, that provides some of that social um visibility social norming um during the pandemic right we saw a lot of people talking act, talking either again online mostly right or virtually about the actions that they're taking um, that that are pro-social, that are generous, that are helping people. Um, so you get some of that, right? You'll get some pressure from that. I do think, I remember actually talking to one of our partners who was saying that it's super easy to get people to share things. Like lots and lots of people will um, share things online. So people love, you post something like, here's a creative way to give back. And people are like, that's great. Like, 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 share, share, share. But then they don't actually donate. <laughs> it's very easy to get people to to virtue signal, basically, right? That's what happens. That can happen in the, the virtual space. But I do think there's something promising. Again, I don't think we've cracked it yet, but I do think there's something promising there. Um, there are ways to think about, you know, how do you how do you hit that balance so that it's that you can, you can still bring in some of that social aspect. Um, or I don't know. Sometimes I'm also like maybe we need to just find some ways to bring it to bring it back into the in person in person space as well. Um, haven't haven't quite figured that out yet. Well, uh, we'll we'll give you a little bit of slack on this one. It's you know not the easiest problem to solve, but come back to us in a week and, and we want to <laughs> right, right. You know, there there are of course most organizations want to go back to the in-person events, to the in-person um, fundraising dinners and uh, galas because there is that social aspect that is that social pressure you know the person to the left of me and the person to the right of me just gave x amount of dollars well i feel now that i should do my best maybe even compete and, and outdo them but at least try to match them or present that well i am a person who cares too in in, in one way or another um i know actually as we were talking i was thinking zoom recently introduced their in meeting donation functionality. And one of the great things about it is when you give, it will let you uh, instantly put up a little banner under your uh, under your photo that says you gave. And talk about social pressure. If you're seeing a screen of 12 you know, faces or nine in that uh, um, <laughs> TV show format that, uh, um, you know, where's Alice? Sorry, uh, if you're, if you're seeing everyone else around you all of a sudden have that little banner oh i gave i gave i gave yeah you're gonna feel that pressure so maybe there are ways to to work that back in on the social uh, and the digital side yeah that's super interesting i admit i didn't know about that and now i really want to try it out <laughs> that's awesome i'm gonna check look into that because i think that yeah like that helps right that's different that's no longer like on a social media platform with some distance that's very intimate that's very like these are your peers giving in the moment so i like that Really yeah. So we have the the personal side of, of things, and um, I know that in behavioral science, and, and I know you work with, with with this sort of thing. We we talk a lot about you know telling that story, getting across that you can help a specific human being or an animal, perhaps um, that we try to get someone to connect to a specific outcome to in a specific person's or or. or someone's life what what happens when we're trying to 
impact more than just one person or one small community. Now that we're online, one of the advantages, one of the disadvantages that I should say first that you brought up is um, now it's everyone's online. And so now it's who basically has the best marketing capability to, to get out there in front of people, right? Not necessarily who does the, the best work and has the greatest impact because we don't respond to numbers, as Danny Kahneman said, <laughs> respond right. to stories. Um, but one of the advantages is we can now find people around the world that are interested in what we're doing in our little corner of the world or in the way that we're trying to help the world to recover or to heal or to, to, to progress. So where does it, where does behavioral science come in when we're talking about bigger cause pictures and uh, things that are not perhaps something that I myself can solve with a donation? Right, right. And that's the other fascinating. So actually, when you read my bio, right, the and I, the other thing that I focus on is climate change and climate change is exact. I mean, this is the problem, right? Climate change, behaviorally speaking, is hitting all of the wrong buttons, right? It's, it's long term, it's vague. It doesn't affect me very like personally, right? It might generally, but not not in the same way, right? So, so the the effects aren't very salient to me, um, and anything I do today feels like a drop in the bucket, right? So all of those things make it so hard for us as humans to take action um, on climate change. And so, and, and if you contrast that, right, with like what are the most effective stories that you can tell in philanthropy for fundraising? It's like the super compelling specific problem. Um, there's a classic example from, I think, like the 80s of a, a baby fell down a well in Texas. I think she, her name was like Jessica. So it was like, Sounds baby right. Jessica is stuck in a well and we need some money to get her out. And that is like, oh my God, it's a baby. She's stuck in a well. She has a name. And I know that if I give some money, they'll be able to save her and the problem will be solved. And for, for us as humans, like that's the opposite of climate change, right? That's like, take all my money and solve that problem, please. And I will feel so good about it. Um, and so I think the challenge is like, how do you learn from baby Jessica and apply it to climate change? How, or maybe climate change is, maybe that's like really, really hard. So let's step back and at least try something like, um, uh, like anti-poverty work, right? How can we not just uh, raise money for, to, to solve sort of the symptoms, right? Like it's great to provide people with food and help children and, and all that, but can we like get at the, the sort of, the underlying causes of poverty instead. And that type of work um, is, is way broader, right? And it isn't quite, doesn't have that specific compelling story. But I think this is something we're hoping to do some work on actually. I think that there is, there is something there, like maybe we can take something that is a big social change issue and try to break it down and give it that level of urgency. Like do a super urgent, you know, old fashioned, uh, what is it like the thermostat kind of the bulb, right? <laughs> like type yeah. of fundraiser around something that is a big social change issue. Like some aspect of climate change or some aspect of like anti-poverty work that you can fundraise the same way. Like, can we bring some of the urgency and specific stories to something that is a big intractable problem? Um, I think there there is something promising there. Again, that's where you see people taking the most action. So uh, again, taking like the behavioral features of those those challenges and could we try to translate them to these these big problems? Um, don't have the answer again to that one either, Boris, but I think there's something there. And yeah, check back with me in like maybe two weeks at least for that one. Uh, well, with the holidays, I, oh, yeah, I understand yeah, yeah. You, you might be a little backlogged. Um, so actually, 
there are definitely nonprofits that are working on that kind of a scale. Uh, one that comes to mind is New Story Charity. They're working to end global homelessness and they are innovating specifically technological answers to homelessness, which doesn't sound like a technology problem. It sounds like a, you know, a physical and low on the well, high or low, depending on which way you're looking at the pyramid on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, it's critical. And yet they are innovating constantly. They are famous for 3D printing an entire community in, in Mexico. Uh, 3D printing, I don't remember how many homes for an entire uh, community in Mexico. Um, and there are definitely people, when I, when I spoke to, uh, actually her name is also Sarah, Sarah Lee from New Story. Um, she was telling me that there are people who will invest in that specifically. They're attracted to the fact that we can make a difference on a huge scale and tackle some of the sources, but also tackle on uh, mass some of the some of the issues that we're facing, versus helping house one family. What's interesting is they then still tie the outcomes to a specific gift. So if you give, they will match you essentially with a family within that community that they're building houses for, and you get to see their story from from beginning to end where they move into their new home. You get to hear from them and they're great about delivering the video to the donor, showing this whole process because you might not be there in Mexico to see it, but you get that full kind of reward cycle that reinforces the, the story of why you gave in the first place. Yeah, that's great. And that also reminds me of some other new research I saw that I really was excited by um, around around those narratives. And so sort of the the traditional thinking had been that we need to show people, we need to tell like really sad stories to people. We need to show people, you know, stories that kind of are framing the people you're helping as like victims um, in a way that other research that actually ideas for you and others have done like suggest that if you frame, if you tell someone they're a victim, right, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily empower them, right? That can actually be quite, um, quite a negative psychological experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was some new research that came out showing that actually you can still fundraise with these like empowering narratives that are, are, and I, you know, maybe, maybe this fits in with the, uh, the story you were just telling, right. But like something much more empowering showing someone still getting help, but not in the same sort of negative tropes that we were so used to in the past. So that's something else I think that we're also really excited about. Yeah. I, I've talked and worked with organizations that are worried about sharing client stories because they feel it's exploitative. And the answer, I agree with you, is show the empowerment, not the victimhood. Right. And that's what we all ultimately want to give towards anyway. We want to empower people. We don't want to, you know, feel bad for them. We don't want to pity them. We want empathy. We want to ev evoke empathy. But we also want to show that it's something that we can all solve if we contribute to this cause in one way or another. Right. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to solve all of the issues that we'd like to today. Um, maybe we'll have you back in in, in a little while to uh, see what <laughs> what you've come up with and, and how you've been able to solve them. That'd be awesome. I'd love to continue this conversation. But for organizations that are listening, for the nonprofit professionals, our heroes um, in, in this case, that are looking to activate more heroes for their cause, what should they be thinking about? Where should they be evaluating maybe their marketing or their fundraising to help them activate, create more heroes for their cause? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, I think 
I, I think that specific sort of that space around like where can you take, especially if you're working one of these big intractable problems, right? Like where can you break it down and create that urgency and that that compelling narrative? Again, I'm going to go back to climate change because I'm familiar with the space, but I think for so long it's changing a little bit now. There was such um, adherence to like scientific language and like you know lots of rigor and how we spoke about it. And that goes against the sort of compelling narrative, human personal touch, right? That we've just been talking about is so powerful. And so, you know, taking something big like that and where can you create that urgency, that compelling narrative and make it the specific, break it down to something specific and that feels solvable. Um, I think, you know, one, if you can do that, that's awesome. And two, if you are doing it, please reach out to me and we can work on that more because again, I feel like this is this, this is the thing that we need to do to unlock those more difficult um, areas of fundraising. You know, you reminded me of another study, and I don't remember, my brain is not great at remembering details. Uh, I'm much better with concepts, so please feel free to fill in the blanks here. But there was a um, an experiment done where they were trying to get people to save power, to not uh, use as much electricity in their homes. And they, in letters that they sent to people from the power company, it basically said something like, on average, this is how you compare to the to your neighbors and on average last month so and so you know saved x amount of um kilowatt hours versus versus what you did and suggestions for how you might also lower yours and i feel like that kind of brings it back to you're not walking down that gauntlet and you don't and you're not at a an event with a lot of people seeing that they are giving and maybe you're not but it creates that social pressure of keeping up with the Joneses, if you will, but in, in this case, in, in a positive light of, well, other people are doing more for the environment. I probably should too, that social pressure. Yeah, that's a great example, actually. So yeah, that, that's the, the O-Power innovation. Um, you probably get one of those. I get those reports now. They're everywhere. Uh, and they they are extremely effective. And it is super weird because nobody else sees you, right? Like literally nobody knows. You could take that report and throw it away and never act on it. But just that subtle nudge, right, of seeing that, oh, actually, I, oh, I'm not actually doing as well. Because actually, if you interview people, most people think that they are above average about everything, <laughs> but including energy conservation. Uh, but, you know, seeing that, it's like, oh, oh, ooh, interesting. Good, good to know. Like, maybe there's some changes I can make, right? Um, another interesting thing I will say about it is it's not a gauntlet, right? It's not visual. But people do... Um, this is a strong word, but some people hate them. <laughs> they still get that same visceral reaction, but it works. I don't know. This is a weird thing about social norms is that they do make us uncomfortable sometimes, those sorts of nudges, um, and yet they are really effective. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to weigh in, I guess, on whether that's good or bad. <laughs> but um, I think, it, you know, like everything, it could be used for good or it could be used for <laughs> exactly, evil. Exactly, exactly. And it does get, yeah, it gets used both ways. So, yeah, but yeah, great example. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your, your time and expertise today. Uh, are there any resources or tools that you recommend organizations check out if they want to uh, look into this further, look into behavioral science or how to apply it to their own work? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I think uh, I'm going to give you, I'll list some out for you. I will also mention that the Ideas42 website has a bunch of them on there. So you can always find what I've refine them there but um so there is the the Daniel Kahneman seminal book right on on behavioral science thinking fast and slow if you want to get all of it downloaded into your brain you can read that book um 
I will say if you're in a nonprofit and you're working with people who are in any sort of like scarce resource situation, maybe you're working with families in poverty or um, that we, there's a book called scarcity that I found that has been again, like foundational to ideas 42's work and others about how that in and of itself is, has like a psychological effect. That's important to understand. Um, but then back to philanthropy. So getting one more specific here, there are a couple of resources that I've in, uh, found really interesting recently. Earlier, I was talking about all the different ways that people give and want to make sure I give a shout out to Lucy Bernholtz has a new book out called How We Give Now that um, gets into some of that and the different ways that people have been giving and how important it is uh, to, to um, count those as well, right? Those are important too. And then if you're curious in learning more a little bit about some of what, Boris, you're talking about, about uh, the, the sort of the dynamic of having super wealthy people dictating the direction of philanthropy, um, there is, uh, I'm also going to, Anand, um, uh, what's his last name? Uh, uh I'm bad too with last names. Uh, Gerrit yeah. I want to say. Uh, his book, Winners Take All, which is a few years old, um, but ha is, has a pretty good summary of that. And there was actually, I will just even, if you don't have time to read the whole book, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but there is a New Yorker summary of the book from 2018 that uh, I found super helpful. That also gives some of the, the sort of history of the philanthropic movement, right? And where it comes from and sort of the challenges there. Because I think before I came into this, I was like, great, just make all the wealthiest people give away all their money. Why are we worried about like everyday givers and everyday donors? But as I think you so eloquently covered, right? It's the democratization aspect of it. So it's actually quite important to have um, the voices of, of many people um, dictating that, where, where the money goes, um, especially because philanthropy is so personal, uh, as I talked about earlier. Yeah, we'll link to all of those resources in our show notes, and we'll link to both the full book and the New Yorker article. <laughs> Thank you. I won't judge which one people read. I will try to read both, honestly. But uh, you know, time is one of the most precious resources we have these days, and um, it, I totally understand why people might not have time to read an entire book and would prefer an article. Um, so, assuming that people are interested in this stuff, which I really hope they are, because it's super important. Where can they follow up with you? What's our call? What's your call to action for our heroes at home? Yeah, so I'd encourage you to go to the ideas42.org website. Um, Boris, I can give you the link to our actual giving space. We've actually, we've been doing this work for about five or six years. So we've published a fair amount of um, research and sort of think pieces uh, covering all of the, the things we talked about today. And um, we are continuing to do this work going forward, at least for the next few years and excited to kind of explore some of these new areas that have emerged um, and uh, focus more on volunteering and um, some of the, the sort of new ways of giving that we see today. Awesome. I look forward to checking those out. Um, this episode will air after the holidays already, but this is gonna give me some fun holiday reading in, in the meantime. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your ideas, your questions. I mean, even if we can't solve all the problems, even knowing which questions to ask and how we should be thinking about things, I think is critical to ever making a difference in the world. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I fully agree. Again, fully drink the Kool-Aid on all of that type of, of thinking. Um, so important. 
Well, thanks again for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in today, spending some time with Sarah and I learning about behavioral science and how we should be thinking about it and applying it to our work in the nonprofit world so that we can create more heroes for our cause. If you enjoyed this interview or any of the others that we've put out, and I hope you check out a lot more, including the one with uh, New Story Charity with Sarah Lee or uh, another one about behavioral science that I had with Beth Carlin or Doug White uh, talking about philanthropy. I'm loving putting all of these episodes out. I'm learning a lot. I'm hoping you are too. If you're enjoying them, please share it with your friends. Leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or on your favorite platform. We try to be everywhere. And if there's something you want covered, let us know. I'm happy to reach out and find guests that'll talk specifically about whatever you're interested in so that we can help you create more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.